That's a fantastic question. Uh, that's a great question. I've not, I've never thought about that. And, and I don't know if I want to answer that one. My guest today is the VP of Enterprise Sales at Adyen. Pierre Boulet, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. It's a privilege to be on this podcast. Looking Pleasure's all mine, Pierre. Uh, I, I'm, your name is French. Yes. I don't detect, I think deeply buried there, there's a French accent, but it's deeply buried. I saw you went to school in Japan. You went to college in Yorick, or Warwick, I should say, not Yorick, Warwick. Um, tell me a little bit of where you grew up. I'm fascinated by that, the, sure. those, those elements. Yeah, sure. I think it's sort of the, the first questions every time I meet someone, um, they, they are confused by my name and by my accent and they can't put two and two together because yeah, um, French people are notoriously, um, you know, uh, let's say recognizable um, when they speak English. And, and so I am originally French. Uh, my parents are French. I speak fluent French. I was born in a small town called Béziers um, in, uh, in the south of France, which is uh, about an hour from Montpellier. But my parents at the time were already expatriates in Japan. Um, and so 10 days later, 10 days after my birth, I went to Japan um, and I lived there for um, in total 15 years. So the first part was six years. I went to international school there, a boys Catholic school mm -hmm. <laughs> run by Canadian brothers, which is quite random if uh, <laughs> if you put those two and two together. Yeah. Um, and, and then I did three years in Germany. And then again, I went back to Japan and, and finished my high school there before moving to England to do my studies. So quite, uh, yeah, quite a, quite a, let's say, uh, uh, back and forth between a, a bunch of uh, countries. And um, yeah, that's, that's sort of the reason where I got my accent. I went to international schools. My teachers yeah. were Irish, American, Canadian. So I have sort of a, a mm -hmm. bit of a neutral one. And, and Whenever I actually interact with a different culture, my accent also changes a little bit to adapt to, to theirs, mm. which, is, which is a bit strange. <laughs> what was that like growing up in Japan? Because you're not, your parents would have been expats there, but you kind of had grew up there essentially. Yeah. But you also grew up in an in a out-of-context environment, going to international schools and so on. So, I'm fascinated by that. It's not an experience that too many people would have had. Yeah, yeah. Um, they actually, there's a term for for people who, who have sort of that background um, because it, indeed, I think it has an impact on uh, your identity. Mm. Um, there isn't sort of a um, true home or a true place you can call home as an international uh, person living in a, in a different country. And, and they call that uh, TCKs. TCKs are third culture kids. So oh, wow. individuals that grow up, not, grow up in a country that is not from their native, um, let's say, ethnicity or, or let's say, uh, background. Mm. Um, and, uh, or, or the native country from the parents. And, mm. and so indeed, I think growing up, I wasn't aware of these concepts, of course. And um, yeah, I attached myself to, let's say, the, the friends and, and, and the family and the culture that was around me at the time. But as you grow conscious that you are not from this place, of course, over time, you, you, you also latch on to different aspects of your identity, like, you know, being French and, 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 and being patriotic about France, let's say, during a football match. Um, but at the same time, loving Japan and loving the people there and, and the food and the culture. So splitting, let's say, your um, your loyalties across different uh, different cultures is, is something that you get used to over time. That's deeply, deeply fascinating in that you, you grew up, you, you are displaced somewhat from the Japanese culture, uh, but you're there to appreciate all the elements of their culture. Yeah. And therefore, you latch on to this French identity, which you have no recollections of. Yeah, yeah. That's that's really fast. It's the the human need. Yeah, I mean for identity. Yeah, in in yeah, I think so. And I think it's also because people that you would meet that are not familiar with 
this type of upbringing would would make you aware of it quite, mm. quite immediately. So, I mean, I did I did spend three to four months of the year in my childhood over the summers and the Christmases in France. So I I sort of built uh, friendships there. Mm. But as I was there, I would be made immediately aware that, oh, I'm not part fully, you know, fully French in, in their minds because, well, A, when I speak English, I don't have an accent, but, but also B, I don't know, the French expressions or slang or, um, yeah, different ways of thinking that are very unique to, to French people I didn't adhere to. So they could mm. immediately, let's say, recognize that I wasn't fully French from a from identity perspective, even though both of my parents are French and I, I speak fluent French, yeah. As a business leader, how did that unique experience, that TCK experience, how does that benefit you? Yeah, so I think, um, I think once I start started reading the book, um, uh, The Culture Map by Aaron Meyer, it's sort of, put my experiences on paper and really help me shape how I sell in a multicultural environment. So thankfully at Adyen, I have a global, let's say mandate, and I can sell in any territory and every territory that I wish to sell into. And, and that background, that experience, having sort of interacted with a lot of different cultures, allows me to adapt my sales methodologies or sales approaches based on how these different cultures do business. You know, mm. in, in Japan, it's, yes, it's hierarchical, but it's also consensus based. And, and, and so you really need to um, follow through a, a specific pattern on how to sell, let's say in a country like Japan versus uh, in a country like France, where it's it's hierarchical, but the decision making and the decision making is done from a top down approach instead mm. of a consensus based approach. And and those are concepts that I sort of learned subconsciously, but then seeing them written on paper that that suddenly validated what I thought about, mm. you know, how there isn't a strict system, there isn't a strict sales approach, um, you know, that is a, that is one size fits all in all countries. You have to be aware of the specificities of each of, of these yeah. cultures and adapt your approach. Yeah. Endlessly fascinating. I, I remember reading a book called Culture GPS and the interesting thing about it, I don't know if you're familiar with it, it comes, comes with an app. Okay. And so what you can do is you can put in your own country and it'll, and, and, and it, rate is the wrong word but it, it gives you characteristics on five different uh, attributes and I don't remember all five there's a couple of that stood out to me one was power differential mm -hmm. and another one is uh, tolerance of ambiguity for example within a given culture and so you do what you always do with these things like when you look at a photograph you look to see yourself first uh, you put it in and you go oh yeah that makes sense I, I get that I remember looking up Ireland for example and it said power differential, which, as they exp explain it, is the difference from the bottom of, of a social ladder looking up. How do you see power distributed, evenly or unevenly? And Ireland had a pretty low score. It was actually third or fourth lowest from the bottom. U.S. was low. Uh, the Antipodean countries, South Africa, uh, Australia, New Zealand, were lowest. Meaning that, and, and if, if you were in a room with the CEO of a company, you'd feel perfectly comfortable. You wouldn't feel that there was a massive power differential. Yeah. France was quite high, it was like 60 on the scale. But I remember doing a class, I was in Jordan, in Amman, and we had a group from the region in the room, and they, they wanted, oh yeah, there was another one which, which is about how decisions get made. Are, are we eye-centered? Is it all, sorry, is it all about the individual or about the we, the group? Yeah. And they were really high, like it was 80 on that. But they were saying, well, but it's much higher. And they pointed to some other country in the region. And I can't remember off the top of my head what it was, Yemen or somewhere. But I remember looking it up and sure enough, they were 85 in terms of the, the hierarchies and how that power. And of course, that obviously is important in a sales context when you're selling. Yeah. 
and and w I remember thinking about this and thinking, yeah, when when you're trying to working with reps and you're trying to get them comfortably being in a room with a CEO, for example, that that's going to be very different depending on their particular culture. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I just w I'm wondering about your own experience with that being able to not just adapt into the, the the norms, like for example about consensus in Japan, but also about power distribution mm -hmm. in different cultures. And how do you map to that? How do you manage that process? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a fantastic question. And 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 I think actually living in the Netherlands and working for a a, a Dutch company that is. Um, taught me that has taught me to be very direct in certain situations has actually allowed me to 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 grow uh, my confidence and help my peers grow their confidence when being in a room with a CEO that is managing a I don't know multi-billion dollar asset bank um, you're you're sort of thrown on the deep end at a very early age I you know was speaking to CEOs of these financial institutions when I was 23, 24, 25, and, and they're in their 40s and 50s and you try to, you have to have a credible stance, you have to be knowledgeable, uh, be confident about being knowledgeable and, and uh, uh, learn how to, um, uh, you know, treat curveballs in a confident way in front of someone that has had a career, you know, twice as long as you, um, even before you were born. So, you know, and, and, and that clearly in different cultures, uh, if you don't know what you're doing, they make you feel that, right? Um, in France, mm. I've been put in, in front of CEOs and they make you feel like, you know, if you don't have gray hair on your head, then there's no point in me talking to you. And so you really, you having that experience at a young age allows you to to weather that storm in a, in a sort of way, weather those painful, uh, awkward interactions. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think being part of a, a company or being, having been part of companies in the Netherlands, having that direct attitude has allowed uh, me to, to be a go-getter and to, to face mm -hmm. those awkward situations. I think it's very important for sales reps to uh, if you're going to be in sales, you need to step out outside of your comfort zone and you need to have these awkward, painful moments. Mm -hmm. It's not a happy-go-lucky ride those first five years of your, your, your career. It's going to be very painful. It's going to be very uncomfortable. And you're probably not going to sell much, actually, initially. Uh, and I think and, 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 and sales reps need to be aware of that. But mm -hmm. the grind is worth the, the wait. Yeah. Yeah, that's the only reason why I dye my hair grey is... <laughs> Shouldn't laugh so quickly at that one. <laughs> I, 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 should, I should dye my hair then. I should have dyed my hair back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you were younger, did you have any sense or what was your sense of what you wanted to be when you went to the adult world? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think... Yeah, I never, I never saw myself going into sales. I think I, I fell into that. Um, I, I always had a bit of a uh, lingering desire to do stand-up comedy or become an actor, um, go into the, sort of the arts because mm. uh, my family members and my and my parents have all been sort of in that in that sort of artsy world. My father mm. was an expat because he was a car designer. Uh, for automobile industries, so always, you know, very creative. Uh, my eldest sister is an architect and an interior designer, and my other sister is in film as a, you know, as an aspiring director, but also uh, having done multiple different jobs in the field. And and now she's converted to becoming an, uh, an actual artist painting. And, and so it's always been sort of a deep, deep desire to have gone that way for some reason I felt like it I maybe didn't have the capacity to take that leap of faith um, and, 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 and go that avenue so sales was a way of leveraging the scales the, the skills or let's say the attributes that um, that an actor or, or, or potentially a stand-up comic mm. um, could develop. Mm. 
and also have a tangible impact on my own wealth and my own success and being held accountable for the mm. amount of effort that I put in. Yeah. Yeah. I would have thought there's a huge amount of what you've said in a sales role, particularly as you describe it, where you're dealing with multiple personality types and cultures. It is a performance in many respects. You do, you do have to inhabit a different skin, if you like, in those roles and the stand up, if you think about what they're very good at, they're very good at building rapport quickly with an audience, at reading an audience, adapting to it, and being able to tell stories in, you know, in, in a minimalistic way that has maximum impact, which again yeah. is the skill of a great salesperson is to craft that. So I would have thought you're drawing on a lot of that creativity in your role, no? In, indeed, indeed, absolutely. Um, mm. I think storytelling is a huge part of, of sales um, and, and, and doing that in, in a simplified way, like you said, keeping it, keeping it short, sweet and simple, um, but delivering maximum impact, I think is, is the key of, is, is at the heart of every great story. Mm. If mm. you overcomplicate things, and I think it's very common to fall into, you know, feature shows, uh, feature discussions. And, but you're, 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 you'd lose your audience very quickly if you go down that route when you do sales. And, and it's, about, it's about painting a picture about uh, individuals or companies that, um, that we delivered value to mm. um, and, and mm. starting sort of with a hero's journey and a hero's arc, right? Where, where you, you paint a situation, you explain the challenges and then you know, uh, the outcome of, of solving those challenges. And, and that, mm. that, that definitely um, is a storyteller type approach mm. to, to sales. Mm. What got you into sales in the first place? Also a great question. Um, so I was, I, after college, after university, I was um, a bit depressed. I actually was sick of academia. I hadn't done a proper job in my life and I had been stuck doing academia for four years now in topics that were great in retrospect in terms of understanding you know the world in general like philosophy politics and, and and economics and those those were great topics but i saw that my peers were going straight into banking investment banking canary wharf the suits or becoming accountants or becoming consultants and i and i for some reason you know the career fairs at the universities were just about that and i felt is that is is that all there is to <laughs> to to work like do i have to become one of these people because I, mm. I i clearly didn't want to do that and so i i did a bit of soul searching a bit of a cliche i, I went i traveled i went to australia did some backpacking with uh, one of my best friends from from japan um an, uh, an, an american and we decided we decided we would go traveling in Australia. We, uh, I was doing demolition work in, in, and doing night shifts, manual labor, uh, you know, breaking walls in skyscrapers. And then I ended up on a banana farm. Um, but then I had a, a university mate of mine coming out to Australia and he sort of uh, sat me down and we, we had a beer and he talked about this multi-level marketing firm that he had joined. Um, and and uh, and and I was like immediately sort of compelled to to join, um, and and he explained like there's a system you follow the system and if you do it right you can make a lot of money, and and so I was like well I'm I'm skint I'm I'm uh, <laughs> I'm a bit broke out here in Australia and I want to spend uh, I want to save and spend some money on great activities but I'm not able to do that out here I want to buy a van I want to travel a bit more I want to see the West Coast. So I immediately got drawn to that. And, and basically what we would do is I, I was one of those annoying individuals at airports or uh, supermarkets that would have booths and, and, and sort of uh, convince people to come over, start a conversation and sign them up to a subscription. And actually these were for, uh, for charities. So mm -hmm. we were professional fundraisers. And I think there's a stigma against professional fundraisers because people think, why should you be making money on uh, on charitable donations? And actually, there's there was an there's an interesting argument, um, a counter argument to that is, well, if charities treat uh, non for profits treat themselves like a business, they end up actually getting more donations. They end up actually making a lot more money for the cause, and they made an actual calculation that one 
uh, every every uh, dollar that you put in in a human advertisement, a uh, professional fundraiser, you would get 10 out of it. But if you put an, a dollar in an advertisement on TV, you would only get two or three. So there was a tangible ROI to getting professional fundraisers out in the street and paying them to do a good job to, to get donations. And that's how I fell into sales. I fell out of, let's say, this potential company because it did feel like a bit of a cult. You know, the whole MLM style. I'm sure you're aware, like what that, <laughs> what that, uh, yeah. what the vibe is. Um, but I, that idea that I, following a system, following a methodology, and and doing it correctly can can actually better my own wealth, better my own success, was something that I was not aware was possible. You know, you were in mm -hmm. control of your own destiny there. And, and, and that's something that's not possible with many other jobs and many other industries where you just do nine to five and, and clock in and clock out. Mm, for sure. Sorry um, for, the, for the long ramble there. But no, I, not I, at all. It's, it's, it's really interesting. And you're familiar with the term chuggers? Chuggers? Yeah. Uh, that's, no, that's what we, I, when, I, when you say chuggers, I think people who down beers. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> It's a, it's a term for people who approach you in the street raising money for charities. Ah, uh, okay. And it's a concatenation of charity muggers. Yes. And, and I share that just because that's how people perceive it. But I'm always, I'll often stop and talk to people or when they call to the door because I'm fascinated by their strength of character to do that job is not yeah. an easy job. Um, I've, I've, I've stopped uh, Mormons who've called to my door to talk about what it takes to be able to go from door to door Absolutely. for two years. And they pay for it. They pay to go on the mission. The knock yeah. on door is getting rejection after rejection after rejection. And they still keep going. And I remember I asked one of these guys and I said, how do you do it? And he said, it's easy. He says, they're just not ready yet. That was his term. That's how he dealt with it. And I just was fascinated by the simplicity because I think if you overcomplicate how you deal with that rejection, and I'm sure MLMs, as you describe it, um, which is out in the street where you're dealing with the public, is the same. You're getting a lot of rejection, people ignoring you. And I think if you don't have a strong, healthy self, self, sense of balance and self-esteem, it's easy to let that get to you. Yeah. And yeah, so hats off to anybody who does that. I think... If, 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 if somebody was in an interview situation, I'd give them extra 10 extra points off the bat before I even spoke to them if they've done that any kind of door to door job. Yeah. And, 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 and on top of, you know, those rejections, right, the, the job didn't even off, we didn't even have a base. So it mm -hmm. was a hundred percent commission. And there were weeks where, you know, the first three weeks I was struggling to learn the system, not making any money. Yeah. And I, I, it can, I can imagine for, well, I've seen it with a lot of like my period or reps that were joining who, who didn't set out the intention to succeed and thought that this mm. would be a side gig. Um, you know, it, the frustration of getting rejections plus not making money on it compounds. And if you, if you let that get to your head, indeed, yeah. it, 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 it's, it can be soul crushing. Yeah. The, the willingness and ability to back yourself and then to push through that wall of rejection you come through that you're 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 already you're a standout uh, <laughs> from from a sales point of view there's no question yeah, I, about I, it i think so too i think so too and I, when i see yeah. reps joining or or if i'm if i'm um, hiring i i indeed i give that a like you said i give that a okay great this guy or this woman yeah. they they're gonna persist um yeah. you know even if they're gonna struggle they're they're really gonna try their best and hardest at, at succeeding for sure I'm interested in your leadership transition, what that was like. You're going from a, a, a role where you're, 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 you're only responsible for yourself yeah. and delivering your own number to now where you're responsible for others yeah. and you're measured on their number. What was your experience of that transition to the point where you felt, I've got this? Yeah, so so actually, to to be transparent, I did have a um, a more of a leadership role in my previous role, um, mm -hmm. in my previous company at Backbase, where I did manage several reps underneath me. However, I decided to uh, to actually become a single contributor again, 
Mm-hmm. And even though my title says uh, uh, VP, it's it's more of a an internal title to sort of classify the seniority mm-hmm. within a within a company. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can I can talk to my experience as a leader, and also I can talk uh, talk to my experience of why perhaps I transitioned back to becoming a single contributor. Um, Please. Yeah, because I think it because I think. It, it looks like a step backwards, perhaps in, mm. in, in many people's views or many people's eyes. So, so I think joining, uh, joining my previous company and sort of growing into a position where I'm managing reps, what I, what I enjoyed was seeing the success uh, and, and, and helping, become, uh, helping others become successful and seeing that success um, fruition, you know, or, mm. or flourish. And that that is only possible with individuals um, that give it their best or, or or try their best to become successful and listen to your advice or or listen to your guidance or or uh, you can see the eagerness that they want to be successful and i've had the experience of of, of reps being like that and, and i truly enjoyed managing them and leading them um, i think that it's a beautiful chemistry um, and 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 I, I learn as well from them as well from their experiences, and 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 that's truly enjoyable. But I also saw the other side, which is managing um, individuals that are not putting the output that you wish them to put out, um, not because um, they're incapable of, but because they just don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see that there's this lack of desire. Especially in sales, I find that very strange and I find that very um, um, disenchanting because Mm. if you're going to go into this space, if you're going to go into sales where you have to be a hunter, you have to be proactive and you have individuals that are slacking, that put me off and, and in a country or in a, in a, in a corporate culture where you know, letting people go is not something that you do in, in the in, in European Union. We have strict labor laws and things like mm-hmm. that. And not saying that we, you know, that's the that's the outcome that I want for people that are suboptimal. I would love to find creative solutions to 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 get them motivated, to get them successful. And we tried many avenues, but when you exhaust those options, and and then you come to a point where you you're simply not able to cut them loose, but you are, let's say, tied down to individuals that mm. that are not performing um, and you just have to sort of keep them there uh, until, you know, they come to their own realization that this is not for them. That is um, that is something that, unlike sales, you are not over control of those variables, right? You mm. that's th- th- Those are variables that you're not in control and you have to deal with, but they're bringing you down and you, you mm. can't turn that around in sales. You know, yes, you get rejection onto the next one and you, mm. you learn from that rejection. You make a postmortem and you learn, oh, next time if this comes up mm. in a sales cycle, that's a yellow flag. That's a blind spot. I need to check my bases. I need to validate mm. this information. I can't do that when you manage mm. um, in an environment where, you know, may, let's say firing someone or, 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 mm. or, or getting someone to move on. Is, is 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 very difficult. I think in the United States or in other countries, sales is a bit more cutthroat and is a bit more of a revolving door. Those who make it, make it. Those who don't, well, tough luck, go to a different industry mm. or, or try something else. Mm. That's not possible in, in certain countries in the European mm. Union. And that's why that's why I felt, yeah, maybe I, I prefer going back to a single contributor role, um, even though I, I definitely enjoyed the management aspect of it and 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 leading the ones who wanted to be led and wanted to become leaders themselves in the future Hmm. i'm wondering i I can imagine this but you tell me if i'm wrong that you might have wanted success for them more than they wanted it for themselves yeah which is a kind of frustration but potentially and maybe that's the wrong way to go about it i i Hmm. definitely see for example um my mentors or my managers above me at the time, um, they're cut out for, I think they're very much cut out for that, um, for, for being leaders. 
um, managing both the good and the bad, right? I thought, mm. you know, I wanted to just take the good in those situations. Um, and I think mm. maybe in the future, I revisit, I revisit that. I think mm. I'm already noticing that being a single contributor has its limits. Mm. I notice a lot of, um, a lot of ideas for optimization within a, the organization in terms of sales approach, in terms of methodology, accountability, um, team, team coherence, those types of things, um, I want to bring to the table, but if you're not a, if you're not a leader, those are difficult to instill. Those are difficult to, mm. um, get others to adopt. Mm. Uh, so, you, so there, there's sort of a, yeah. a to and fro in my mind of whether I want to yeah. go back to that or not. <laughs> and you've also got this unique makeup in terms of your ability to be able to adapt seamlessly amongst different cultures you can't you can't learn that in a book and or from a book I should say and you would be kind of giving that up a little bit as well when you're if you went just to managing a team unless that team was multicultural but even then it's the ability to sell across cultures is a unique skill there's no question about it that very few people have and that's worth a, a real premium so yeah indeed indeed and and yeah. you know like I've, I've noticed you know some sales leaders are not great salespeople in the field sometimes um and 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 you don't have to be a sales uh, wolf or shark or mm. whatever you want to call it to become a great sales leader and vice versa right mm. yeah just because you were a sales gun doesn't mean that you're mm. cut out to become a manager and i've seen no. many many managers that were sales guns that created a toxic culture within their own teams mm -hmm. or, or vice versa, you know, um, uh, people that were uh, individuals that were mentors that were uh, excellent at the, the theory of sales, the operations of sales, the mm -hmm. processes, the optimization, the team coherence, all of that. Um, but, but when it came to, you know, um, let's say being extroverted in front of a customer, mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, and making ballsy moves or making, you know, risky moves in a sales cycle, um, they would, they would not do it themselves. So it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. I've seen one of the, actually she was a manager at the time with my very first customer. So that's 20 years ago in this business. And she went back to being an individual contributor as an account director because she said she was just tired of again wanting success for the team more than they wanted it for themselves and she was kind of felt her income and potential was being held hostage and over people she she couldn't easily fire yeah and she just said you know what i have a choice my family first and yeah. i'm going to do what's best for them and yeah. she said, I'd rather be an excellent individual contributor than be kind of struggling as a manager, not because she didn't have the nows to be a good manager, but there was just so many obstacles over which she had no control, but she was yeah. in full control as an individual contributor. Yeah. So uh, I'd imagine you're going to see more I, of that. I admire, I, I admire um, um, amazingly the individuals who are able to unlock that potential of people that mm. are indeed, you know, not motivated. I mean, that, that takes, an insane amount of skill uh, mm. it's, it's almost an art form you see it with coaches you know in sports leagues i mean you 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 have to put those individuals on a pedestal because i think it's yeah. a it's a 10x 100x harder job to to, yeah. to do that than being a single contributor yeah yeah it's true the sports analogy is a funny one because on one level they're trying to manage people with massive in egos who who probably you know, could walk into another role on even more money in the morning. On the other hand, they have tools available to them that a manager in an enterprise organization doesn't have, as in they can cut a player from a team if they're not measuring up. True. And they can sell a player, just, okay, we're done with you. You can't yeah. necessarily, particularly, as you said, in, in Europe, it's so much more difficult to do that. Um, tell me, uh, who inspires you? As, um, as uh, in terms of famous individuals or in terms of people close to me or in terms of just anyone, just any individual. Who comes to mind? Who's had a huge impact on your life? Definitely my father. 
um, and my mother as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also my first, my two sales mentors in enterprise sales, um, one, uh, one named Malcolm out of Australia and, and, and also Matthias Eiper, who was my, my previous, uh, let's say leader management, uh, leader, um, mm. in, uh, in Backbase in my previous company. Um, I think Dave Chappelle, like the comedian um inspires me several comedians ricky gervais uh, coming back to loving stand-up um louis ck as well um i think several actors and several yeah uh, yeah business business gurus as well but i think the reason why i i i'm inspired by those stand-up comedians on top of you know my professional let's say mentors or my family it's and it's their job is to get very close to the line the line being the one that you cross where you start offending everyone and i think i naturally do that and i adapt Mm. like with different cultures and i try to understand where is that line to make people Mm. laugh Mm. because i like i like making people laugh um and i think every culture um has humor Mm-hmm. But you need to figure that out. You need to figure um, where is that line? Where is that boundary? And you, you get there. And some cultures, I mean, it's it's up here, right? And some cultures is down here. And the art of figuring that out with without ever going too far across the line and just stepping over and getting the laughs, I think is is something that mm. I naturally do. And when I look, when I when I see comedians having made a, a great career out of that and and being revered for that it's it's enjoyable and it's inspiring mm. to see that yeah mm. there's something else as well i think the courage to stand in front of a live audience and put yourself out there and risk as you know dying on your feet uh, yeah, risk. And, and i think now in in a world of social media it's it's 100x the the blowback you're going to get because as you get to that line there's always going to be people whose lines you've already crossed and, 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 and instead courage. of getting, yeah. And instead of like, uh, getting one rejection, right. Mm. Like in door to door sales, you're getting a, a rejection in front of millions or mm. thousands of people all at once. Yeah. Um, yeah. so indeed. Yeah. It's funny seeing people. I saw her, I heard, listened to a reviewer on the weekend and he was talking about Ricky Gervais, uh, latest, uh, Netflix, um, show stand up. And, uh, he was, he was so angry. And he was, this man is just not funny. And it's not about this. It's, not, it's just not funny. And I'm thinking, I found him hilarious. I loved, and I'm, I know my wife wouldn't find him funny at all just because of her type of humor. Nothing to do with the content. Yeah. But it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting to see the different reactions to the exact same experience. Um, yeah. But, but go back. You said you're, yeah, what I'm interested in. Not funny. I, I don't get angry about it. I just stop watching them and exactly. find the ones that are quite funny. <laughs> exactly. Why, why, yeah. why, why allow them to get into your head on? So just turn it off. Yeah. But, um, but <laughs> okay. That, that's a whole other conversation yeah, about why people would even do it. that. <laughs> yeah. I think some people just want to be offended. Um, yeah. but if you go back, you said, what a, your, your parents and you mentioned a couple of individuals as mentors. Tell me about the traits that you admire most in your parents that you feel you've honored and, 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 and integrated into your own experience. And then I'm also interested in what you learned from those mentors more from a professional technical perspective kind of lessons mm-hmm. there. Sure. Um, so I think, I think my father always sort of taught me this sort of never give up mentality. Um, he used to say it quite often and I could, I saw it in his career. Um, having worked for, you know, multiple automobile companies and in some situations also being pegged, pegged a few, let's say notches down, um, having been promoted and then pegged, you know, back down and then promoted again and going back and forth, a, a kind of common thing in legacy, traditional sort of corporate cultures. Mm-hmm where it's not a constant, you know, <laughs> um, improvement and, 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 and seeing him not be demotivated by that, although frustrating and, and coming back on top and mm. in his career, um, at several, at several locations, I think has, 
sort of, yeah, taught me at a young age that, you know, success is built based on adversity. It's built based on challenges. It's not built overnight. Um, and, and I think my mother as well for, you know, the, the traits that I, I saw from my mother is, is that she, you know, supported the family unit and supported the, the decisions to, to go far from home and to, and, and, and to make make sure that the, the family stays as a coherent unit, um, as well as taking on, you know, a teaching job, managing, uh, students is not, is, it's not the easiest actually, uh, being mm -hmm. a teacher is in a way, um, similar to sales in many, in many aspects. Um, but actually even more difficult because you're dealing with, you know, younger individuals that are not fully conscious of their behavior and their mm -hmm. actions and, and can be downright brats in a, in a class. And you're trying to, you're trying to, as a teacher, improve their opportunities in life, mm -hmm. um, by educating them. And, and that takes a lot of grit as well. That takes a lot of persistence, sure. um, and, and enthusiasm because I can imagine, and especially in a, in a, in a, in a vertical where teachers are, except for, you know, the highly paid Harvard students, uh, Harvard teachers or, or Ivy league students, they're not, yeah, they're not compensated mm. on the same level that you would be if you were a great salesperson. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so staying, keeping that motivation up, even though the, let's say the output in terms of monetary gain is not is not there that requires a, another level of commitment which which mm. i felt was was very inspiring as well mm. and the, you mentioned a couple of mentors as well what was did you learn from them yeah um so my first mentor uh which was in australia which was in this software startup where we we pivoted to enterprise sales um at, at the time actually i was undecided whether i would go into marketing uh, become a you know marketing specialist or uh, or someone who would go in sales because um, before he joined I was sort of double hatting and, and mm. wearing two hats and I was familiarizing myself with you know uh, Google Ads social media SEO those types of those types of topics but then when he mm. joined I could see that the the difference in the level of uh, between you know the, the the person leading marketing and the person leading the sales and I decided okay well this guy's got a lot of expertise um, and he is willing to teach me. He's prescribing me books to read on the topic mm. of sales and, and I'm reading those books. And so I, I felt like, you know, I'm getting an academic education around sales on top of a practical one. Um, and, and that was very, very helpful. And, and we've, we've remained, yeah, long, long-term mm. friends since, since mm. that, uh, experience actually. Yeah. And, and, then, and then up, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah. And then, and then the second mentor, um, I, I got to experience, let's say my first real, uh, large successes uh, in the field with, mm -hmm. uh, you know, large deals with financial institutions in the, in the multi-millions, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, let's say, uh, uh, size of the deals. And, and, and that was thanks to the leadership that I had, um, uh, previously in, in my previous, in the previous place I worked for, um, Matthias and, and he, uh, I think he was an excellent, he was both an excellent sales gun and an excellent manager. And so he got both the best of both worlds in one. Mm. Um, and, and, and he was very empathetic to, you know, individuals that were struggling, but could see that he was, they were putting the effort in and mm. was always there if, uh, you know, you needed a shoulder to cry on, um, and always there to celebrate your successes. And I think that was, um, extremely helpful. Uh, to, mm. to grow um, and, and, and being shielded maybe from, let's say, the more cutthroat aspects um, that exist in a, in, a, in a, let's say, sales organization. Yeah. Mm. You mentioned the, the first mentor that was recommending books for you to read. Was there any standouts or, then or since in terms of books that have made an, a real impact on 
how you yeah. think about the world. Yeah, indeed. Um, I think a couple that, that come to mind are uh, New Sales Simplified by Mark Weinberg, um, The Lost Art of Closing by Anthony Narino, mm -hmm. Sales Acceleration Formula by, uh, the, I think it's the, the VP of, I think it was the VP of Engineering actually from HubSpot. Mm. Um, oh, so uh, Mark side. Roger, isn't it? Yeah, so he was on the engineering side, but he actually yes. came up with a sort of uh, formula internally in HubSpot to scale the business on the sales side. So he used sort of a very mathematical approach, not mathematical, but formulaic mm. approach to, to scaling, to recruiting as well, which today I, I, I use that in my practices. Mm. Um, and then, of course, of course, the challenger sale one. And so, so quite, quite a different and, and, and never split different difference by uh, Chris Voss, who I think was on your show. Um, so yeah, all, all fantastic books. And to be honest, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I haven't picked up a, a sales book in, in a year now, and I should get back to it to refresh my memory. But I think, I think it's because I've compounded the, the learnings and the experience that I feel comfortable that I don't, yeah. I've lost sort of that student mentality, but I, but it's yeah. having a student mentality will enable me to keep growing. So I, I definitely should pick up a book again. <laughs> well, I, I was actually thinking about this just this morning. I was, I bought, I was in Malta a few weeks ago, I bought this little book and it was about espionage during the Second World War. Okay. Uh, Malta just seemed to play this really interesting ro ro role in conflict throughout decades because of its geographic location. I, would, I said centuries, I should say, not decades. And, um, but it was fascinating and, and it was, the book was talking about books that had been written about spying and espionage. And I thought, you know what, back then, that was the only way to document your knowledge and, and, and share it. But we have so many ways, podcasts, videos on you know, YouTube, uh, articles that, are, that proliferate across social media, specific, specifically LinkedIn. And even just little, I was reading a few this morning from, and I'm seeing more and more of this, individual reps sharing their own experience and their own learnings. And it's in a small bite-sized chunks. That's the modern book. Because yeah. you're getting so many more experiences. Uh, some will resonate with you, some won't. But, and there's only so much time of the day you can gift to that. So I think that's one of the reasons why there may be also pullback. But also, all sales books say the exact same thing. As somebody has written yeah. one. Like, you know, it's, it's, it, it might be a different perspective on it and different stories in there. At the end of the day, selling is selling, and there's only so many ways you can slice it and dice it. And that's uh, true. I, yeah, that's true. and I, I think that I'm, that I'm also afraid of this new information age uh, and 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 what it's doing to our attention span and consuming knowledge in these bite-sized chunks. Yeah. Um, I I could see it, it having an impact on, well, my own short-term memory. I'm forgetting keys and wallets and phones everywhere. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Is, 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 is it that your short-term memory is the problem or you're just overloaded with so many things to get done? Yeah, could, could, be, could be more like yeah. uh, focusing yeah. on, on like work topics and, yeah. and, and other larger personal topics instead of, you know, mm. the, the, little, the little small uh, trivial details that are still important in your life. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I also, I mean, they, they talk about videos. I've seen so many, you know, make sure your videos are under two minutes if you're trying to communicate something. And I'm thinking, that's BS. Because people will have no problem sitting down to a three-hour Joe Rogan video, right? And I just use that as one example of many where people would sit down and watch something. That if the content is interesting enough, mm -hmm. or it's presented in an engaging way that keeps the viewer's attention, that two-minute rule is nonsense. It's, but the two-minute rule is usually when you have somebody very corporate standing in front of a black, blank background and droning on about a particular topic. Sure, you've got probably a two-minute limit on that. So I, I think there's nuances in all of these things that we need to factor in. And the same with the books is that we can learn. There's many, many other ways other than sitting down and reading a book. And, and then there's not many, too many books that are really well written in a way that's engaging. Um, 
So I think there's a, I, I think you're right about attention spans. I think they are getting shorter. There's no two ways about that. And, and there's an onus on those of us who are in the communications business to adapt to that. But there's also, uh, yeah, the, the onus is on understanding that things haven't changed. If a book is poorly written, people put it down. Doesn't make yeah. a difference. The fact it's a book, it's... Yeah, if it's, if it's not a, you know, you've heard the term page turner. If it's not written in a really well, and the truth is, most of us who write sales books, that's not our our our, our skill, writing, yeah. copywriting, and uh, yeah, 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 indeed. And I yeah. and I think I think one that stands out is this this book from Chris Voss is a page turner. You know, mm. I mean, it's it's an exciting. It's almost written like a thriller in a way. You know, with the hostage taking and negotiating, and 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 that makes it a thrilling book to read with actual, you know, um, lessons learned. Um, whereas others exactly, are more, exactly. More about methodological. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not an academic read. No, it's exactly. yeah. It's it's stories, and that's what we love. Yeah, Pierre, I, do you know what? I'm I'm I'm. Struck by how fast the time has gone. I'm actually really disappointed because we're up against the clock. I'd love to talk to you. You're, you're a fascinating character. There's so much more we'd, I'd love to explore thank with you. you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I, uh, I would love to talk to you more as well. Yeah, no, we'll have to come back and do a second one on this because, there, again, there's so much more. And I, sometimes when, I'm, when I have a guest on and I look at the clock and it's half an hour in, I'm kind of thinking, okay, I need to ask about this, this. None of that. You, just, this has just flown by. Amazing. And uh, I want to thank you for that. Uh, before I let you go, um, two quick questions. Desert Island sure. question. Uh, what would you, you're going to go Desert Island. You don't know whether you're ever going to be rescued again. What one thing would you take with you? Ooh. My girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> We could explore that in so many different ways. Because I was thinking sometimes people answer it in a very practical way, as in I would bring a, a lighter to start a fire. Some people answer that in a very, you know, I, I would bring my favorite food or my favorite music. It's, it's about pleasure. Um, I'd say no more think, on that. I think it's to share, to share the, the, the moment probably with, with someone that you love is the reason why I answered that. Oh, you're mm -hmm. an old romantic. <laughs> but also, also two two brains are better than one. I think it's easier to survive on a desert island, perhaps, with two people instead of one. So that is very true. That is true. And with, with that company, you won't go crazy. Um, <laughs> exactly. Or yeah. or you do, but then <laughs> yeah. And we were talking about books. If there was a book written about your life, when your time on this planet is done, the book written about your life, what would you like Oof. the title of it to be? Oh, that's a tough one. I've not. I've never thought about that, and and I don't know if I want to answer that one because I don't know if I want a book written about me. I'm not sure. I don't know. It's a okay. it's a difficult one. But you're I, dead. I, 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 you're you're dead, Pierre. You have I, no you have no choice. You're dead. Somebody decides to write it. <laughs> what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Yeah. Hmm. Or, let, let me ask you to don't hesitate, uh, okay if, don't hesitate to cross the line that, that would be the title of the book i love that i love that <laughs> that's that that'll do yeah pierre boule thank you so much for being my guest today it's been an absolute thank pleasure you, appreciate it thank you so much